shows to his professor, and he's interested in trying to get my wing design put onto the design that they're working on. And the professor had never heard of it, and so the kid presents him with my papers, and it was pretty funny. <laughs> pretty funny. Amazing stuff. Um, he's Hindu, so we're having conversations about belief systems, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Kid's name is Anirudh. Um, pretty amazing week for me. Let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, how incredible you are. We listen to the words and the music and they, they speak to us. They speak for us. We read of your great majesty your almighty power and your sovereignty over the universe. And Lord, we are so incredibly insignificant before you. You are so righteous and we are so undeserving. Heavenly Father, we look at your love and we do not understand completely how great is your love. Greater than all the heavens. You sent your Son, and how amazing, and how deep the mystery. Your Son is the model of behavior and of love for us. Lord, he tells us the way we were meant to live, and of the relationship between him and us, Jesus and his church. How awesome is Jesus, Lord, and we are so lost without you. Heavenly Father, our sin, and weigh us our sin and failure weigh us down and drag us back. and We forget to look to you. But this morning, Lord, we come to you. Remind us from the words of Isaiah so that we do not fall short. Let us follow after your heart and not ours. Heavenly Father, give us the wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah and to understand. Give us discernment, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this week we finish off chapter 43. I have to say, this was like super easy pitch for me. Um, I was going through this even though there are a bunch of verses here, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really an amazing chapter. And when you first read it, if you, if you aren't paying attention, it'll just go right, right by, right? And um, by the way, the, the, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking metaphor, right? And immediately I'm thinking Guardians of the Galaxy, Dave, Dave Batista, right? Metaphor. It would not go over my head. I would catch it. No. <laughs> um, it, it was one of those moments. But uh, yeah, this, this is an amazing, an amazing piece. Now, we had opened up chapter 43 last week, and uh, we're going to start on, on uh, verse 8. So verses 8 and 9. And... 
through Isaiah, God is speaking here, and, and, and I love this. He, he's, he's calling us out, those of us who are, you know, not paying attention sometimes. Verses 8 and 9. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. So this is the community of deniers, the people who refuse to see the wonders of the handiwork of God. They deny what is obvious before their very eyes. They can see it, they can touch it, and, and still they do not believe it. And they forget that God is the deliverer of all that is right, that is just, and that is good. God proclaims these to the blind and the deaf. In all the nations, can anyone proclaim to bring their version of truth to explain the wonders of God's universe? Of course, the answer is no, none of them are able. Their truth does not proclaim the greatness of God and their motivations are false. They all deny God's greatness. Continuing on, verse 10. Now the Lord speaks to us, and to Israel, by the way. So in this case, Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel. And he's telling Israel what they should be doing. But again, the metaphor, the deeper meaning, the double meaning there is for us, the members of his church today, and those who will be in the church in the future as well. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So here in verse 10, God declares that Israel are the witnesses to God's greatness. Israel is God's servant. And while Isaiah is saying this to Israel, Isaiah is also saying this to us, the church. We are the witnesses of God's greatness. We are God's servants, chosen by him to do these things. We are created by God to stand as his witnesses. verses 11 through 13. And I bunched all these together because it's all sort of one thought here. Isaiah is speaking, but these are the words of God. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? God proclaims his ultimate and complete sovereignty here. God is the only Savior. There is no other who can claim such power. And we are all witnesses to God's complete and utter control over his creation. God willed everything that does happen to have happened 
From before the creation of the universe, God willed this. God is the ultimate judge. Deuteronomy 32.39. Deuteronomy 32.39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God is the ultimate arbiter of what happens. Anything that does not happen, God has not willed. Anything that does happen is willed by God. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. The Chaldeans, like the Phoenicians later, are a seafaring people. Their might is in their control of the sea from their ships. It is, in fact, one of the ways that they worship themselves to delight in their power that they project from the sea. In this way, their ships are their idols. The Chaldeans worshipped the very thing that they had created with their own hands. God brings the Chaldeans down. God uses Babylon to defeat the Chaldeans. Their ships cannot protect them. I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm going to here. Historically, the United States became a world power in the 1840s, 1840s and 1850s. And the reason for this was because of the clipper ship. The United States, nothing like that had existed in the world. It's an invention of the United States. And the thing that, it wasn't that we had better marine architects. The British were actually better than the United States was at that time. But the British did not have forests. The United States did. And that made the difference. And because of that, the US was able to build bigger, faster merchant ships than the British could. And that was, by 1850, there was no question that the United States had passed the British. Unfortunately, right after that, the United States decided to have this large internal war, internal struggle, that set the United States back about 30 years. And so it isn't until the 1890s that once again the United States gets to that same point. And there are a series of wars that break out at this time. And prior to World War I, there's a, a, a war that happens between Russia and Japan and the United States sides with the Russians at that time. And it was because of the ships, the ships of the United States, that the United States was able to become the world power that it was over 140 years ago. And it was because of the clipper ships that arose in the 1840s. This is a huge big deal, and that's why the United States is where it is at today. In your lifetimes, 
in all of our lifetimes, we will see the United States pushed off the top. The Chinese are going to pass us. That is a given. The question is, what will the United States do then? Will we heed the words that we're supposed to, or will we try and do something out of ourselves? So far, I see everything headed the wrong way, that the nation is trying to do it of itself. Out of, it's not trying to do it the way that it should. And this is going to be very difficult for us to watch, for all of us in the church to watch as the United States goes down the wrong path. Pray for your nation. It needs it. Back to Isaiah, verse 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Right here, God is not equivocating whatsoever. He proclaims his ultimate authority, power, and rule. Continuing on, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. The Lord is king over all the universe, from the sea and all of its ways, across all the land over which the horse and the chariot roam. God is the king. God controls all. God removes them as the flame of a candle is extinguished. God is the king. God tells us, verses 18 and 19, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And all of a sudden, right here, I realized Isaiah is talking about Jesus. God decides what is done, and God planned it this way from the, before time began. God does a new thing. And those who cling to the old way shall be passed by. Those who do not see what has happened are left behind. God makes a road through the wilderness. God makes living water to flow through the desert. These are metaphors. God is speaking of a new covenant. Man cannot please God by following the commandments. It is impossible. So God makes it possible by substitutionary atonement. Those are big words. But what that means is Jesus pays the price. Jesus, the Son of God, the crown prince of high heaven, pays the price for us so that he stands in the gap for us. The gap is there because we cannot achieve what God requires. But Jesus, being God, 
cannot fail. It is not possible for Jesus to fail. And Jesus is the bridge between us and God. And it is only Jesus. Continuing on, verse 20. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Verse 20. These animals are associated with very desolate areas, places the Hebrews would call wilderness. Water in the wilderness, drink for my chosen people. Again, God is giving us a metaphor. God is giving us living water, the water of life in the desolate places where people do not know of or believe in God. And God is giving the water to his chosen people. And now I'm going to give you a bunch of references about living water. John 4, 7 to 15. You'll all know this story. John 4, 7 to 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his son and his livestock. You see, Jesus is talking a metaphor, and she is taking it literally and missing what's going on. Continuing on. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the lesson that we all miss, right? When, when Jesus comes and offers us eternal life, we're hung up over the eternal life part. We completely miss the part that living with Jesus is actually the real reward. Later on, John 7, 37 to 39. John 7, 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
So where in the Old Testament does it say this? Proverbs 4.23, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Later, in Isaiah 55.1, Isaiah 55.1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jeremiah 17.13. Jeremiah 17.13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Zechariah 14, 8 and 9. Zechariah 14, 8 and 9. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. So there are many references to living water, if you dig. Verse 21 and 22. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. I was thinking about this one yesterday afternoon. I had to go change what I said just a little bit. God creates us to be his people. We are meant to be his church. Our purpose is to declare God's praise. The church exists to declare praise to God. And yet Israel chose to not declare praise to God. Israel acted as though God was laying too heavy a burden on them. And Israel grew tired to bringing honor and glory to God. Israel hardened their hearts. They failed to recognize why they were there. Verse 23. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. The people reduced bringing honor and glory to God to mere rituals. Festivals and celebrations and feasts, which were to honor the relationship of the people to God, were reduced to mere observances. And the people would just go through the motions and not understand why it was they were doing these things. Jeremiah 7 21 to 24. Jeremiah 7, 21 to 24. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, 
Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear. But they walked in their own counsel and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And they went backward and not forward. Verse 24. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God does not look for sacrifice. God looks for honor and glory. It is God's due. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Hosea 6, 6. Hosea 6.6 For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 1 Samuel 15.22 1 Samuel 15.22 And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice? as in obeying the word of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. Who is the one who blots out our sin? It is God who removes our sin. God had a plan. From the very beginning of time, the whole time the universe has been in existence, God had a plan to pay for all of sin. And just as the Israelites who made the golden calf had their sins removed and found forgiveness from God, so too do we receive forgiveness for our sins. And God does this to bring glory to himself. We do not earn it. We do not deserve forgiveness. God does this and gives us forgiveness to bring glory to himself. Verses 26 and 27. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your, set forth your case that you might be proved right. Your father, your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Israel stood before God without a defense. Israel could not defend themselves against God's evidence. From the very beginning of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, that became the 12 tribes of Israel, 
Jacob or Israel was not worthy. None of us are worthy. However, if we stand in Jesus before the Father, the Father is faithful and true because Jesus had blotted out our sins. And the Father will judge us righteous. Our last verse. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Here in verse 28, because of Israel's hardness of heart, they are condemned by God. Israel shall be remembered for their hardness of heart, for their sin. And others will have to carry the message of God. This ends our passage today. But all through here, all through this thread, you can hear Jesus. Jesus is standing there in the gap. He's the one that rescues us. He's the one that blots out our sin. God redeems in the end. God's people do not necessarily have an easy life. But God's promise stands. This is what Isaiah is telling us. Do you hear it in the words Isaiah says? Can you see what God is doing here? Do you see the thumbprints of Jesus all over this passage? Everywhere. This is God's good news calling to us every single day when we get up. That song in our hearts should be there. The alarm clock goes off at 5.30. <laughs> yeah, some of us, <laughs> I used to get up at 4. It was, that was a little worse. Yeah, this morning was 5.30 for me. But do we hear that? Isaiah is singing a song of redemption. God redeems Israel. God redeems his church. Isaiah is saying, look to God, soar on his wings. Isaiah is trying to point us back to God, to look at Jesus. We become more Christ-like by doing that. And the more we look to Jesus, the more we become like him. God loves us. There is plenty of chaos in the world, and we have to overcome that. We look on that, we need to think about Jesus. We need to think about God. And despite all of our failures and our sin holding us back, Jesus blots all that out. And God chooses us. Ultimately, all of this serves God's greatness also. And his greatness will be there on that final day when he comes back. And we see Jesus riding in the clouds. And we will all be witness to his greatness and his splendor and his power on that day. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are so amazing. You are so great and you've done so much for us. And Lord, we are so small and powerless and weak. Lord, you've kept these words spoken by Isaiah and sheltered them down through the years just so that we could have this to understand. Down through the ages, you have protected the church. And Lord, we have been unfaithful. We keep trying to save ourselves. And you keep saying, no, look to me. Heavenly Father, hide your words in our hearts. We read the words of Isaiah, your prophet. Write your words deep down inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn and guide us in your perfect path. Guide our feet. Your plan of redemption is so amazing, so perfect. Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save us. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are our Lord. And we bless and we honor you. And we praise your name, the name above all names. The name of Jesus. Amen.